every language in the world is hard to learn. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta start with that. There's no easy language to learn. There's no one like, oh, I'll just learn this. It'll be fine. Um, they're all hard and they all take time. It takes an intention of, of, of practice, of a willingness to be corrected over and over and over again, um, which, is, which is hard. It's hard to be corrected for the same thing, the same mistake you make over and over again. And you start feeling, am I that mistake? It's like, no, it's okay. It's, it's hard to learn the language. Some languages are, are comparable to others. There's a lot of, you know, English is this kind of mix between Germanic languages and, and Romance languages. And so there's some similarities in other languages. There's these things called cognates, which are words that sound similar. And then there's the even trickier false cognates that sound really close, but are actually opposites um, and get you in this trap. But every language is hard, hard to learn. And I want, want us to think about that and imagine a, a situation where you drop into a different country, a different culture, a different language. You don't know any words. You know nothing. You know how tricky that would be. You don't even know yes or no. You can like point and grunt. And this is what, <laughs> what you're left with. Uh, you know, most places in, in Europe and other parts of the world, a lot of people know English. There's signs in English, and you can kind of get around. But it's so much easier having a translator. Hungarian is a really tricky language. Um, <laughs> Alina is not here, but that's her native language. And it is one of the three European languages that is not Indo-European in structure. And it's um, Basque from northern Spain and Hungarian and Finnish all come from a different language tree. And so they're just radically, radically different languages. But when I went to Hungary with Elena, it was great because she could translate for me. She could order me coffee. She could, <laughs> could read the sign about which train to take. One time when we were there, uh, we were taking a cab late at night, and the, uh, she opened the door, and the door came off. <laughs> and I, my wife is pretty strong, but not that strong. <laughs> And the, the, the cab driver was like, why did you break my car? <laughs> and thankfully, she could speak the language with him. It was like, I did not break your car. Your car is not a great car. She used different, language, different words than that. Um, I, don't, I don't know that. Apparently, there's a, a plethora of wonderful swear words in Hungarian that I have no <laughs> that I don't know. But she was able to communicate clearly with this guy about, about the car. And it was, it was great. It, was, it made, made our time there much more open and much more um, wonderful just to be able to understand the culture more in that kind of way. And I've, I've picked up a few words over the years. I remember um, you know, the, the amazing feeling of pronouncing a Hungarian word right for the first time. <laughs> it took about five years, but it was just this, this amazing satisfaction of yes. Because Hungarian has 26 vowels in it. Uh, there's a lot of, and it's like, uh, 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 you know, and it, it sounds lovely when it's in the words, but it's, it's really hard. It's tricky. There are, other there are other places you can visit that have English as the native language. You, can, you know, if you um, go to England, go to Ireland, go to some of the Caribbean countries and English, go to Australia, um, South Africa, English is the dominant language, but it's a different English. It's not the, the same thing. And you can kind of deceive yourself into thinking, oh, I'm going to an English-speaking country. It'll be easy. And it's, it's different. I remember going to, to Canada. And I was driving through. I was in Thunder Bay, Canada. And I was at a Walmart. 
which is the, the place to be in Canada, is a Walmart. <laughs> um, I, had to go, I had to go to the restroom, and I was running around the Walmart looking for the restroom, but they don't have any restrooms in Canada. They have washrooms. <laughs> and it took me about 15 minutes of an emergency, and then I was like, oh, a washroom. That's, I guess, okay, good job, Canada. Um, but, it's, but it's different. I, I call this a, a deceptive fluency. We're deceptive. We're not quite fluency, but fluent, but we convince ourselves. Um, things look comparable, but it's not quite the same. And I think language in this way is a really helpful metaphor as we continue and finish our series on our sacred story. As some stories can look very similar at a glance, but really be radically different. And I think this is how it works with the story that the world tells us about what we should care about. And there's, it can look very similar. It can have a pretty similar vocabulary, but the grammar is radically different. The structure is radically different about what matters in our life. Each of us have a different vocabulary than each other. Each of us have words in our life that matter in a different way, in a unique way, depending on our own life histories, where we grew up, our own friends. I believe that you can be a twin and still have a radically different vocabulary and a radically different story than your twin, even if you've had so many experiences with one another. And yet the world does push down this story about what we should care about, what should be the most important thing for us, what we should strive for. To live our sacred story is not just to have good intentions, but to have practices in this world shaped by love. Practices, like the practices necessary of learning a language. Our sacred story has a grammar, a vocabulary, a history beyond ourselves. It does not end in ourselves. We learn our story by living our story to the fullest. My friends, as I said, we are finishing our, our series on our sacred story. Three weeks ago, we started by talking about what a sacred story is. I said this quote from the unnamed French mystic. Our sacred story is the story of all the things that flow. All the moments that flow in our life coming together, what we care about, what we, we believe in, who we are, where we have been, all coming together. But it does not end with ourselves. It continues, it continues to flow. And then thinking about, do our actions match what we say about ourselves? Do the things we do match what we say we believe? We looked at the story of the rich young ruler in Luke 18, and then the story of Zacchaeus, in Luke 19, Zacchaeus, who was more than a wee little man, who was a sinner, who was a, just a crummy, crummy dude, and who would steal from people and like skimmed off the top and just thought he was better than everybody else and thought everybody else was a sucker. And then one day, Jesus was coming to town and he climbed up on that tree. If you're in the Netherlands, it's a fig tree, right? Yes, yes. yes. That's what I said. In, in the Netherlands, it's a fig tree. In English, it's a sycamore tree. That's fine. You climb up on that sycamore tree. He looks down and he sees Jesus. And then Jesus sees him. And Zacchaeus' life is changed. His life has changed. He was going one way in life, and then he turns around and goes another way. Jesus says, I am coming to your house this day. And Zacchaeus repents. He converts. And he makes a pledge. He makes a pledge of restitution for what he has done to others. He makes a pledge out of gratefulness for what God has done for him. Two weeks ago, we looked at how 
our sacred stories are different, how my sacred story is different from your sacred story, and how we as a church, we as Christians in history have often abused this and what I call moralism by, by judging others without looking at ourselves, by telling people how to act, how to behave, instead of pointing them to the God who saves us. And how it forces people to put on these masks these masks of what we think the world wants of us, these masks of what we think the people in our life want of us. But how the word of God is like a two-edged sword that cuts through those masks and gives us freedom. Freedom to be who we were created to be. Freedom to live our sacred story. Last week, we told the story of Berkeley. From its founding to now and how the story of this church is not over. We have in the, in the narthex still some of those um, scrapbooks of those pictures from so long ago, which are wonderful to look at. Pictures of even when this church started, when it was meeting over in the cafeteria across the street. And how that is not the end of this church. As that the end of our story is not last week, or it's not this week, it's not next year. The end of the story of this church is not found in the people in this room, but in the people yet to come in need of rest, in need of comfort, in need of grace in their life. We come back to the text for this day from the Gospel of Mark, which is very similar from Luke 18, except instead of a rich young ruler, it's just a person. And, the, and most translations has it as a man, a man comes up to Jesus, but it's a demonstrative pronoun. So it's just like this this thing, this person comes up to Jesus. Someone comes up to Jesus. It's not relevant who it is. Which is interesting. You have in your mind, when you hear a rich young ruler comes, you have a different image than just someone. It could be anyone. It could be a poor person, rich person. It could be a Jew, a Gentile. Someone comes up to Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, do this, this, and that, you know, follow the law. And he says, I've been doing that since I was a child. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. I love that line. Looked at him and loved him. And I wish there was more, more times in my life when I could say I did that with people. Just in general. Beyond my spouse. But I think that's a wonderful thing to be able to do. To be able to see. I think that's what it means to like see with God's eyes. To be able to look at someone and love them before speaking. Usually it's like look at someone and speak. Or even not start speaking before you look at them. But... Jesus looks at them and loved him and says, you have one thing you are missing. You must sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And then the person walks away grieving because they have many possessions. I don't have the Charlie Brown music this week, but you can imagine it. Walking away, grieving. They didn't want to do it. And then Jesus goes on and talks about the eye of the needle and how it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. Which always, if you ever study Renaissance art, which a few of you have, but it's really great, um, you, you, a lot of the rich people in the Renaissance, when they commissioned works, they would commission themselves in these biblical paintings. And so there'd be a painting of like, there's Jesus and, and John and Matthew and then Cosimo de' Medici. <laughs> so, um, and, and usually on some of these paintings, there would be a little needle somewhere, just hidden, and a tiny, tiny camel. <laughs> and so it would be like, you know, it's like, wow, that's a really literal interpretation. It's like, I wouldn't, you know, take it like, I guess Jesus meant that we should breed camels so small that they would go. <laughs> but 
I don't think it means what he thinks it means. I think it's a little different. It's, it's really hard. It's really challenging. How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. Wealth is comfortable. I imagine that this past week we had a um, surprise surgery for Dominic, our, our five-year-old, soon to be six-year-old. Um, he broke his arm two weeks ago and was set in a cast last week and then went to go um, follow up and the, the bone had started moving apart. And so they had to do a general anesthesia for him and had like the next day. And so it was like a two-hour appointment on Wednesday and then the next day was just completely shot and we had to go and, you know, that morning got a call from the operating room about what the cost would be just for that, not for the anesthesiologist, not for the surgeon. And I think about that with this text because I think it would be so comfortable to not have to worry about where that money was coming from to pay for that medical. And I could just, you know, and I paid it. And like, it's paid. Like, I'm not concerned about not helping my son. But I think that's part of it. There's so much, the ease of that seems so tempting. Not wealth can be anxiety-inducing and challenging and thinking about, oh, I've got to shift this around, shift this around, shift this around. And it's this concrete way, I think, Jesus is talking about, of where do we put our comfort? Kathy Beth also read from the book of Acts and from this passage that is usually read around Pentecost. It takes place right after the big Pentecost moment when Peter goes out and preaches to the masses and and there's these tongues of fire and all the languages are heard as one, and the people start gathering, and that's where it picks up in verse 42. And the people gather together, and they share everything, and they give away. They share everything. Even that bike they really like, they share it. (laughs) Even their favorite, you know, their favorite bread, or their favorite cookie, they share it. I think we need to be the kind of people who can look at these sayings and not dismiss them. Both Mark 10 and Acts 2. How the kind of people who can hear these words or see these people and think, oh, you know, it's so easy to think, oh, that's, you know, that's 2,000 years ago. That's a different time. There's different things going on. That doesn't apply to me. I'm not wealthy. I have no problem with sharing, we may think. But then the question comes, is our definition of wealth the same as God's definition of wealth? And is our definition of sharing the same as God's definition of sharing? These are powerful verses in the book of Acts. And it says day by day they did this. Day by day they shared. Day by day they worshipped God. Day by day there's a habit going on. It is not just this one time thing. And you can see a difference between the response to Jesus' living and the response to Jesus after the resurrection. In, in Mark 10, Jesus calls for this one-time radical act. In Acts 2, it is this daily habit of generosity, of mercy, of worship. This day-by-day act of sharing, this day-by-day act of having generous and glad hearts. The day-by-day act of having goodwill towards people. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, who can really be faithful in great things if he has not learned to be faithful in the things of daily life? And it is essential for us to understand this quotidian nature of our sacred story with God. That if we believe that we are loved, if we believe 
that we are forgiven, if we believe that God has a purpose for us, there are daily things that we get to do. And so, if we think that our sacred story does not align with our actions, or if our sacred story does not align with the way we practice generosity or live our lives, a real question is, what, are, what can we do about it? What are we left to do about it? That's the name of the sermon for today. How do we live our sacred story? It's an honest question. How we live our sacred story, though, begins with hope beyond ourselves. It does not begin with ourselves. It does not begin with a self-actualization list, with thinking through all the things, ways we can improve ourselves. But remembering that we are not the answer to the question of life. It does not begin with faith in ourselves, but faith in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Our hope is that the God of transformation is not finished yet. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And perfect, perfect in Greek is teleon. It is also like finished, an end. Like telos. So another way to see about it is be completed as God has completed. Find your end as God. As God's end is found in love. Day by day we can practice our end in God. Day by day, we can learn the syntax and vocabulary of life with God in this world. A life of love and compassion and mercy. But we can't put limits on God like the rich young ruler. That is like saying you're fluent in a language after only learning the alphabet. It's not going to get you very far. <laughs> and then I think of like, if you've ever been to Wales, I haven't, but I've seen those, signs, those Welsh signs that go on like 15 lines of one word. It's like, the alphabet's not going to help you if you're trying to travel in those places. But the most radical thing for us to do is to live our sacred story day by day. This is what is called discipleship. Discipleship. Discipleship comes from the Greek word, which means to be a student to be a student of Jesus, to do the things of Jesus. Over here on, our, um, on the wall is a wonderful little, little poster, I guess. I don't even know what we should call it. Um, but it's, it, it's, a, it's a poster that shows the ways of discipleship and the spiritual disciplines at Berkeley. There's also a handout in the narthex called 33 Ways. And what it does is it shows all the things that you can do here to get closer to God. All the paths of discipleship that you're able to participate in. The things you get to do day by day. We split this up into, into service and prayer and contemplation and self-discipline and guidance and celebration and study. Opportunities of growing closer to God. Opportunities of living our sacred story day by day. Zacchaeus makes a pledge out of the freedom Christ offers him. It cha- he changes his story because he gives up on total control of his life. He changes his story because his own comfort is no longer the most important thing in the world to him. He changes his story because he, is no, long, he no longer sees himself as the center of it. He no longer sees himself as the center of world history. The people around him are not just pawns for him to use and abuse and dismiss. The people around him are no longer just suckers from, for him to take it changes. 
And seeing the person, Jesus, Zacchaeus finds a purpose worth living for. In gathering around the tables in Jerusalem after Pentecost, the disciples find a purpose worth living for. It is not merely survival. They're not living to survive. They're not living to set up their own nest egg. They're living for the abundant life of the triune God. Sharing together life together. Life offered to us. An opportunity offered to us, but not finished by us. We are not the end of God's story. We are not the end of God's story. Today is not the end of your story. Your story does not end this day. The story of Berkeley does not end this day. God has more for us. And day by day, day by day, we are asked, do we live lives of scarcity or generosity? Is grace scarce? Is grace a scarce resource that we need to hoard and protect because it's going to dry up? Like the rain that have been falling, but we know they're going to stop eventually. It seems like they aren't, but we know they're going to stop. And it's going to go like three months without a rain. Sometimes that feels like grace, that grace comes to us. Like these rainstorms in the fall. And it just showers us and showers us and it feels great. But sometimes we're like, we doubt it. And we think, oh, it's going to end. And I've got to hoard, I've got to hoard these blessings. Because I don't know what's going to come. Instead, we must realize that grace is overflowing. Your cup runneth over. Your cup runneth over. We hear in the 23rd Psalm. There's not an end. We see in the miracle at Cana with Jesus. Jesus saves the best for last. He doesn't serve the good wine first. Grace is overflowing. Especially in those times when we don't deserve it. Grace is offered to you all. The grace of mercy. The grace of faith. The grace of love. And we learn to live our sacred story through the practice of a faithful life. We live it not by putting a limit on what God can do for us. We live it by not ignoring what we can do for others and what we can offer for God. We live by accepting the gift of God, of the story of others in our lives. By accepting the gifts of life together and by sharing in the promise and victory of God. By believing in something more than ourselves. That is how we live our sacred story day by day. Not with a great bang, but with a whimper. The whimper of daily life, the whimper of the mundanity of God being present as we wake up in the morning and brush our teeth, as we have our breakfast, as we have our meals, if we go through our routine, the mundanity of God being present even there. That God is not just found in the mountaintops, but found in our kitchens, found in our restrooms, found in our cars and our commutes, found on the crazy traffic of Austin. God is present there and waiting to be found, waiting to be seen, offering us life, offering us a sacred story worth living for. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.